We pick it up in verse 17 today. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Read along with me if you would, please. Verse 17 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Will you pray with me, please? God, thank you so much for the privilege of this time. May every word come straight from you. Guide, lead, direct. Open our hearts and minds to hear you. Pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us, God, that we would be able to hear and see and receive, to know you better, to love you more, to want you more. God, please, tonight, today, here in this room, perform the therapy you have ordained for each of us, bespoke to our needs. Now, God, you and you alone can minister to each of us and speak perfectly to every area of life we need spoken into now. So, Lord, pull me out of your way. Immerse me that you would be seen. Immerse me in you. And come upon me to do the work you've ordained. As I hand you this now, Lord, have your way, I pray. May we have so much fun in your word. And may we get it deeply profoundly get it. I pray you would save, that you would transform, that you would do all the work you've ordained. And Lord, please, may we be captivated in you. Make us more like you, forever changed, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. The society that God wades into is consumed with power. And as God has made clear that we become like what we worship, so the religious community has also become so. Cold, indifferent, impersonal, suspicious, condemning, self-important. Like Herod the Great, the poster boy for power lust, every person is a potential threat. And the more endowed, gifted, bright, popular a person is, well, the greater so. In this maelstrom of Torah-toting vigilantes, the law is an arrest warrant, a gavel, a guillotine, to any who knock upon the paper walls of this tyranny that's marketed as some form of whole or hierarchy. And Jesus knows this. He knows where his actions will lead. And he knows what they're thinking, where it will lead as well. Lawbreaker. Well, this is the express train to eliminating all of the competition. And since the religious leaders owned the jury and the judge's bench, well, it's been fail-proof until now. The problem is that cold, hard law is vacant of any warmth of mercy. And those who swing this hammer now have put the needy, 
the downtrodden and the fallen as castaways, opponents of the social order. Lines are drawn and they are marked squarely on the other side. And Jesus knows this, but it doesn't stop him. Because this is the environment Jesus steps into. Power-hungry, self-important. Two points appear irreconcilable. Law and mercy. You can't simply be a faithful law keeper and be a humble, compassionate, caring friend of tax collectors and sinners like Jesus was called in Luke 7.34. Or so it appears. I kind of get the idea that this is why they thought they had Jesus at checkmate when they took the pawn of an adulterous woman and thrust her before the king in John 8. But the law was given through Moses, John 1.17. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus would represent both grace and truth. In our text, Jesus has gathered a large crowd. It is a crowd of former mendicants, possessed, powerless, paralyzed, basket cases, the castaways. And they've all been touched by Jesus through the hands of fishermen who knew that if they could cast their nets to the bottom, he'd fill. Jesus would fill the nets. And this is what they've done now with men. And as Jesus has touched life after life after life, It is the beginning of the journey, not the end. And as he sits, there becomes two groups of people. Those that can say they've been touched by Jesus. They've been healed. They've been directed. They've been made sane. Sure. But. That's it. And those that seek to become more. To actually become like Jesus. Not just touched by him. And in this room, they will probably be the same. If we're going to be honest, there'll be those who want to kind of make sure that they don't go to hell and want to make sure they kept God at bay. And there are those that yield to the craving God has placed within you by his Holy Spirit. That wants to know him deeper, love him more, not to become powerful, not to become self-important, but to become like Jesus. Who told us that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. Not like the Gentiles who lord over everyone else. And now these same people who were, well, unable to walk, unable to think, unable to function, are now going to become the revolutionaries for the entire world, like yourself. What Jesus makes clear, beloved, is you will never be disqualified by your past. You'll never be disqualified by where you came from. The only thing that will disqualify you is your will, your choice. Will you follow him? Or are you doing God a favor? So as he sits now, his disciples come. The crowd that actually wants to know Jesus more than just touch him for the moment. And Jesus starts to go straight after their identity. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with the perks package. It doesn't begin with, now here are all the changes that need to happen. It starts with, now let's get through your head and your heart who you really are. Do you know how many Christians, 
people who have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ still haven't taken the first step with Christ of figuring out who in the world they are in Him? Are you afraid of what He'll tell you? I guarantee you, He will not tell you you're an ex and then go back to your past. That's the enemy's job. He loves to go back to your past because let's be honest, you can't change it. Except in this, you can cover it in the blood of Christ. So when the enemy tries to remind you of your past, thank him. Thanks. You reminded me again of the further depth of the grace that Jesus has poured upon me to forgive that too. And while you're at it, as he's reminding you of your past, why don't you remind him of his future? Anyways. And Jesus then tells them, this is who you are. Blessed. Salt, the salt, the light. And now Jesus takes the moment and starts revealing who he is. We've known him as Savior. We've known him as healer. We've known him as deliverer. But to his disciples, the students in the course of Christ, He wants to show himself so much more. Notice this text begins with this. Don't think this. Because of the way we were raised. Where mercy and the law seem opposing. He knows that if Jesus were to reach out to the needy, our natural supposition is that he'd come to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, we only have a couple of verses, but there's a lot to develop, which is good news for some of us, for me completely. And I need to start with this. Destroy. From a Greek perspective, a word that is written here is the word kataluo. Could you say kataluo? Kataluo. Kato means according to you. Matter of fact, all four Gospels start with kata. Like katamatiuho. In other words, according to Matthew. Luho, the root word means to loosen. I love this. When we think of destroy, do you think of it as loosening? Letting it loose. Because the idea is simple. Scripture tells us, by the way, that All matter is held together by his powerful word. Jesus does that. Right now, Jesus is holding together every atom in your body. You say, how can he do that? You know what's so cool about faith? I can say, because he's God. I could try to figure it out, but it takes away the wonder of the truth, which is because he really is God. Now, when we split an atom... It releases enough energy to destroy or to heat a thousand homes. So then count the 300 trillion cells in your body and imagine what would happen if God just took them and he just released all of the cells in his thumbnail. England and the UK would cease to exist. Man's got a lot of energy there. We all do. 
Scripture makes clear that the heavens and the earth have an expiration date. Funny, we've been saying this forever. Scientists have finally caught up with us. Have you learned that yet? But Scripture tells us that the heavens and the earth will be, even the elements will melt in the fervent heat of a great explosion. So when somebody says, do you believe in the Big Bang? I might suggest you say, well, yes, but you have it on the wrong side. They believe we started with it. Bible makes clear it'll end with it. There is a Big Bang and it's coming. And when God releases every cell from the other, imagine the energy that will be exuded. And heaven and earth will pass away. And when it passes away, it will be loosed. We read in Hebrews that Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of sin. And there's the same word. To release all those who their entire life were captive because of their fear of death. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, the religious leaders are having a board meeting over these troublemakers that they call the sect of the Nazarenes or the way in its time. We know them as Christians. And as they're trying to figure out what to do, it's Gamaliel who steps up and he says, you know, let's take a look. There's this Judas and this Thutis in history. And each of these guys had their cults. They stood up and they did their thing. And then once they kind of went off the scene, they kind of fell to nothing. He says, you know, might I suggest do the same. Leave these guys alone. Because if this really isn't of God, it's going to fall apart on its own. It will, and the term he uses is, it will come to nothing. And it's the same term that's used here. Okay, so I get it. Loosening it all, falling apart. Jesus makes clear that doing that, to trying to do that to the law would be a bad thing. People are doing that today. They're taking scripture and they're trying to pull out little parts. Trying to pull out the part about what the Bible says about sexual purity. Be that homosexual or heterosexual. Trying to pull out the part that it speaks about Jesus as Lord. We don't mind Jesus being, if you will, our biblical butler. We just have a problem with him being the Lord of Lords. There's a whole group called the Jesus Seminar. And what they do is, you know how some people highlight in their Bible? Well, now it's, that's kind of a relative thing because most of us have apps that highlight. But understand, they like low light it. They take markers and just say, no, we don't agree with that. We don't want that. And then that's exactly what the Gnostics did in the first century. And the idea of it is that they're removing texts. That is loosening the entirety of this beautiful, meshed word of God. Because you're looking at the law the wrong way. You're looking at the law as if it were just some ball of twine. That you could just start, start pulling parts out. Or a Chinese puzzle, that if you pull one part out, the whole thing falls apart, if you've ever seen those. This is the problem is you're looking at the law the wrong way. Don't think that I've come to do that. I didn't come to do that. I came to do something else. Pleraho. Can you say pleraho? Pleraho is the word we use here for fulfill. Now, interesting, fulfill is the term which we actually, that I want to focus on on this, because it just blows up the whole text. If I look at the law like a sword, like a spear, like a javelin, like this thing, and if you want to pull out a part, the whole thing's going to fall apart. This is a, supposed to be a straight line, whatever. I'm, 
It's a good thing we're not videoing. And, you know, and it's like, oh, we just, you know, well, you're just come to kind of pull apart off and watch the whole thing fall apart. Well, then you're looking at it like this and you're looking at it like a weapon. And you'd say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Tony. It does say, though, that the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. And able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the intents of the thoughts of heart of man. But it says it's like. It's not it. It is. It's like. It does say this sword of the spirit. But I'd like you to consider the way Jesus is addressing the Old Testament. The way that Jesus is addressing the Old Testament isn't like this. It's like this. This is a 2,000, actually, it's a 2,200-year-old Canaanite uh, bowl. What was it used for? Just kidding. Anyway, um, this is obviously intended to hold something. At the moment, we could comfortably say this is empty. Somebody took clay and shaped it. As it spun, they stuck their hands in it and they started to shape it until it became this shape for the purpose of it actually holding something. To be honest, most people drank in cups like this. They weren't those fancy chalices, you know, like in the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies or whatever, where they're like, choose wisely. You know, this was more likely something people drank from than something that was obviously fancy made out of gold and silver, unless you were Herod the Great. So consider the fact, what if the law looked like this? then the clear part of it is, is that Jesus didn't come to tear out parts. If you put a hole in this thing, it no longer has a purpose. It has to be complete for it to hold. Does that make sense? He says, I didn't come to do that. I came to fill it up, to fill it to completion. And then I started looking at where this Pleraho word came, and all of a sudden you start seeing this theme here. In Matthew 13, verse 48, it tells us that when the disciples, at Jesus' request of casting the nets, drew to shore, they sat down and gathered the good. And he speaks about it in this case as a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. That when the dragnet was full, they gathered the good into vessels. There's the idea of filling. As a matter of fact, the idea of it is that that net was to be full of fish. The net was not just intended to be full. The net was created to be full of fish. That was what it was created to be full of. It's an appropriate thing. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus speaks about the will of the Father, and he says he appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is Jesus having his board meeting, if you will, on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a specific will, a specific plan, and that specific plan, if you will, think of it this way, that net was this and the proper filling was fish. The will of God was this and the proper filling was Jesus' death and resurrection. Does that make sense? Interesting. It's the same word that is used as well in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, there is a woman named Mary. And she takes a very costly oil of spikenard. And she fell at Jesus' feet and anointed him, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. And I love the fact that the word that God is using here is a word that says, in essence, to fill for what is appropriate for what it was created. And I think that's interesting. I get it. A net should be filled with fish. It isn't like in the net came and in it came a tire and a couple pieces of rubbish, as someone might today if they're, they're casting a net in some particular lakes. 
You're probably aware of the fact you fall in the canal in, in, in Camden. It is policy to pump your stomach, so don't do that. That's why we don't baptize down there. I get the idea that the will of God was, was something that had to be filled with Jesus' death and resurrection. That was the fulfillment. Are you with me on that? But I love the fact that God says the house was created, if you will, to be filled with the fragrance of such beautiful devotion. An alabaster jar. Let me show you another container besides this one. This is an alabaster jar. Inside this alabaster jar is spikenard. Spikenard is rather costly. The good news is it doesn't have to, you don't need much of it for it to go far. For instance, let me demonstrate. Let's go three sprays aside. That's it, just three. Okay, you ready? Just tell me when you smell it. Just kidding. There we go. There's one. There's two. There's three for your side. There's one. There's two. There's three in this side. Somebody smells it. (laughs) You smell it? No. You getting there? It has this way of permeating. That's six little sprays. Oh, yeah. You walk around here, you're going to get it. Good news, my wife is here, so I don't have to come back smelling like this. She's like, why do you smell like that? Okay. Now, follow me on this for a second. Imagine, if you will. Yep, some of you are getting it. Imagine a jar just this size. Worth a year's wage. A year's wage. Figure out what a year's wage is around here. And imagine a jar like this filling a room the size of a quarter of this. Just this right here. Could you imagine when it says the house was filled with the smell? Pretty serious how smelly that was. And since Jesus had already gone to the temple, he was not going to go and take another bath or shower that week. Do you know what that means? That Jesus' clothes were saturated with that smell on the cross. Though he hung naked, they went and gabbled for those clothing and still smelled like this. Do you imagine, and to be honest, could you see the grace of God in that? The Father, as if at there hanging on the cross, he could still smell that smell and be reminded of the devotion of one person who still loved him at a moment like that. I'm a big smell person. I don't know why that is. But I have like these, I actually do, and then forgive me for being weird like this, I guess, or whatever. It's not a sin. But it's like I have these specific clones, and if I like have a season, I know I'm going to be someplace for a while, or like this winter, this is going to be my season. And the only reason is when I have it and I smell it later, it reminds me of that season. I mean, there's something about smells that bring, that engage your memory. It's kind of really cool. When we were in York, I picked a specific thing so that I knew that every time there, I could smell it and be reminded of hanging out with our daughter. It's kind of just its own little thing. Well, anyways, the house was filled with this. Did you get that? Now, which of these two would you rather be? Now, the reason I say that is, is that the scripture makes clear a couple things. And one of them is, you're a vessel. Whether you know it or not, you're a vessel. And the way that you're a vessel, you've been shaped by the master's hands. And you were intended to contain something too. The same word that is used here is the same word that it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Don't be, understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with much wine, which is dissipation, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. You were created to be filled, and you were created to be filled with the presence of God. It tells us, by the way, as well, in Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy. That also, by the way, is the same word. You were created to be full of joy. It tells us, by the way, in Ephesians 3.19 that we should, Paul had been praying for the Ephesians that they would know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that they would be filled with the fullness, filled with the fullness of God. You were created to be full of God. And with that joy, with that, according to Romans 15.13, not only fill you with all joy, but it says, and peace in believing. That you may abound in hope. Now, you were created to be full of God's presence. You were created to be full of God's joy, God's peace, God's hope, God's fullness. Listen to this text. Because amongst the larger scale body of Christ, there are those that say, well, God ordains some for heaven and some for hell, and there's really nothing they can do about it. And interesting, they refer to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. This is what it says. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some for honor, like this, and some for dishonor, like this. Ordinary is the idea. Dishonor isn't just the pot to poop in. The idea is something that doesn't get any real great attention. And people go, see, take a look. Some were one, some were the other. The problem is, you need to read the next verse. The next verse says, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll become a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Here's the thing, to be honest, if we're going to be honest, this is how every one of us is born. We are born sinners. Scripture makes clear we inherited this from our great 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 father, Adam. And because of that, we inherited and we were born bad. And there's the problem. And this is why Freudian or Rogerian sort of psychotherapy doesn't work. And I'm not trying to diss psychology in a mass, but consider this. Going back to the idea of saying that the, the foundation is man's basically good and somewhere down the line he got tweaked in his environment and so we need to go back to find out where that good guy went bad. The problem is scripture tells us we were born dead in our trespasses and sin. We were born children of wrath and the issue is not going back to where we got messed up because that's going back to Adam. The issue is actually letting the old bad guy sever ourselves as far as we can from the guy that we used to be. Enter Jesus. There is the point. So please understand something. Though we start this way, notice in 2.21, the point is not if you decorate the outside, then you'll be useful and you'll be noble. He says if you cleanse the inside. Now I have seen some very well-decorated commodes. My, my in-laws have a beautifully painted bidet. Yeah, it's sort of a... Or something to wash your privy parts. And it's well decorated. It's very pretty. And there are other vases that are decorated less. But you would much more rather wrap your hands around the second than the first. It is not because of their decoration. It's because of what they contain. And that's what he's telling us. 
So listen to this text again. I didn't come to destroy or unravel or pull out the law to loosen it. What I came to do was I came to fulfill it. So immediately I start looking and saying, well, then the law is something to be filled. The law isn't just something to, to kind of stand next to. The law is something that needed to be appropriately filled, like a fish for the net, like the beautiful, fragrant obedience of, a, of, of someone who loved Jesus in the house, like Jesus' death and resurrection to fulfill the, the law of the Father. Like we are created to be filled with the presence of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, the hope of God, well, the law too. Now, here's the way it works. He tells us, notice in verse 17, he did not come to destroy, and he doesn't just say the Old Testament, he doesn't just say the law, he says the law and the prophets. Follow me on this for just a quick second, and then I'll walk us through how this plays out. From the time of Moses, Israel read the law, which is the Torah, the first five books of Scripture, every year. To this day, in synagogues, they still do that. Kind of like you can in a lot of Anglican churches, or almost all of them, where they all have the same texts sort of every week. Not, not like they do the same text next week, but no matter what church you go to, they're going to have the same text. They kind of have it in rotation. Well, understand that there is a, a schedule, a rota for the Old Testament, or the Torah for specifically, the first five books, where basically by the time, and, and it's sort of like 10, 11, 12, they kind of, where, the, where by the time it's done, by the time the year is done, you will have read through the Torah every year. It ends, of course, with what's called Simcha Torah, where at the last of the weeks they read the last two chapters, the beginning of the other. There's kind of the idea of it. Now, now follow me on this. In, in the 160s BC, Antiochus Epiphanes of Greece really wanted to destroy Jewish culture and had a real problem with these guys that were so strict to their particular religious observances. And, of course, that included bowing to, to you know, you know, statues made of him. But one of the things he did is he outlawed the reading of the Torah. So as a result of that, the Jewish people were stuck with something to scramble to do. So what they decided to do as a result of that was that the religious leaders took, the, in essence, took that vote. And what they decided was that they were going to read the prophets in its place. And they called that the Haftorah. So what would happen is, is that because they couldn't read the Torah, that didn't mean they couldn't read the rest of the books of the Old Testament. So they would read the, the, the prophetic books. And they did that in rotation. But when... Things were reinstated for them to be able to read the Torah again. They didn't remove the other. They just added to it. So understand, for 150 plus years, they had been reading. They were able to reestablish and read the Torah every year. But they also had passages from the, from the prophets as well. So they called it the Law and the Prophets. Interesting, by the way, in the Haftorah, they never would read Isaiah 53. That actually is not a portion that they allowed. In your own time, by the way, I suggest read Isaiah 53 for yourself and see why. It is such a beautiful, clear depiction of Jesus Christ. So by the time Jesus is stepping onto the scene, we understood that every time we went to church, so to speak, synagogue, we read the, the, the Torah and the Haftorah, or if you will, we read the Law and the Prophets. And what Jesus said, by the way, in, in, in the Gospel of John chapter 5, is you search the Scriptures thinking by them you possess eternal life, but all of them, they are the ones that testify of me. In Psalm 40, it says, Behold, I come in the volume, or if you will, in the entirety of the book. That's why no matter where we open up Scripture, I expect to find Jesus there. But if I look then at the entirety of the Old Testament, and I look and I see it like this, then the question is, 
Why is it holy, not just H-O-L-Y, but if you will, H-O-L-E-Y, why does it have this hole in the middle and what's it to be filled with? So follow me on this. Let me walk you through this quickly. First of all, when man and woman fell in Genesis chapter 3, God made really clear with the falling and the choosing of their own selfish ways, like we do too, that the land was under a curse. And there's our problem. From that point forward, there was a curse man had to deal with. Man would have to work, but as he set his hand to the field, it would produce thorns and thistles to cut up his own skin, but he'd have to work through them anyways if he was ever going to live. She would suffer through a painful childbirth. And interesting, God took as the symbols of the curse those two things, if you will. A woman in childbirth and thorns. So I look and I say, well, when could the end of this be? Will there ever be an end to the curse? <clears throat> Enter the law. Well, there's the problem. Is on one side of it, we look and say, well, I would look to the law. The law, because Jesus says the law and the prophets. The law cannot remove the curse, and there's the problem. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed is anyone who does not conform with all of the words of this law. And the people had to say, Amen. In other words, the only way for the law to make you right was for you never to have done anything wrong in the first place, because then you would have broken the law. The only way to be right from the law was to never rely on it to make you right. You had to be right beforehand. So the law cannot make you right. And there's our problem. Is that when we look to the law, what the law tells us, in essence, is the law says, well, then how? If the law can't make you right, well, then how can a man be made right with God? The problem is, to this day, most places you go, that's what you're going to get. Here is the law, whatever the laws we set up, and that law is going to be, if you just do it, well, it'll make you right. But the law can't make you right. The same way that if Jay decided he walks out of here and robs a liquor store, then Jay decides after that he's going to obey all the laws, he's still a criminal. Now, I'm only saying that hypothetically, Jay. I don't expect you to do that. So please understand something. The law can't make you right. What the law does is show that you're not right. What the law does is show there's a hole. There's the problem. The law says you can't be right by it. It just shows you need to be made right, and you're not right right now. There's the problem. The good news is God provided something other than the law. He also provided the lamb. So if we want to try to be right by the law... It's sort of like actually deciding that you're ugly, but looking in the mirror long enough is going to make you cute. The law doesn't, the, the mirror doesn't make you any cuter. The law just shows whether you are or not. The law, the, the, like a mirror, will actually show every defect. Unless you do something with it. No matter how you want to smear the mirror, it doesn't change your face. And people can try to change the law any way they want to, though it doesn't change. It doesn't change the condition because the truth be told, all it does is reflect and tell us where things are wrong. But then we go back to Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 22, I start going on this hunt. And this hunt starts like this. In Genesis chapter 22, as God introduces both worship, love, and obedience, all the words are introduced there. And as he does, Abraham is taking his son, his firstborn, his only son of Sarah. And as he is, he is taking this son up for a full sacrifice, burnt offering. That means everything is going to be sacrificed. And the son seems to be no dummy, which tells us he probably wasn't about two. And he's looking at his dad. And by the way, I love this text when I think about worship, 
when we think about did we worship, did we worship because we sang songs, did we worship if there was just because we raised our hands or we felt something, we had an emotional experience, is that worship? He says, listen to this, the son says, listen, dad, we've got the fire and we've got the wood, but we don't have to sacrifice. How can this be worship without sacrifice? And that's the question I ask myself. When I look at things like that, I ask myself, was there a sacrifice? Was there a... And think about how many songs we sing where we're saying, take all of me, I surrender all, have all of me, I give you everything. The whole idea of that is that idea. It is that, listen, God, if I'm really going to worship you, then I know that means I need to surrender. I need to give you the one thing you really want, which is me. There's the idea. And so when this boy asks his dad, okay, I get it, we're supposed to worship but I'm kind of missing the most important thing. And we can have all the fire we want. And we can whoop and holler and we can do laps and scream and yell in tongues and we can have a great emotional experience and we can be like, woo! And we jumped up and down and we had high fives and we were woo! And we were slaying ourselves and throwing and flopping. But we can have all the fire, but without the sacrifice, God says the same thing. Where's the sacrifice in this worship? And we could have all of the utilities necessary, the greatest PowerPoint and beautiful laser light shows and an amazing sound system and a beautiful stage. And people could come in and have an amazing experience and go, wow, what was this? But if there's no sacrifice, it's not worship. And the boy asks the dad, he's no dummy. I'm, we're, we're not just missing a thing. We're missing the thing. Oh, I'd hate to miss the thing and say it was worship. And Abraham turns then to his son and he says, don't worry, son. God will provide himself to be the sech. Can you say sech? Nice, sech. It is the word for lamb. And as he's about to slay his son, God stops him. And they see a ram in the bushes. The word for ram is the word agil. Can you say agil? Does that sound the same to you? No, because it's not the same. They're not the same because they're not the same word. And God does this in the way he teaches. Guess what he just did? He gave us a hole. And the hole was, well, wait a minute. God was going to provide himself to be a sech. Where's the sech? If I'm finding, if he found an ayil, clearly God has not provided that thing. Now, how do I know that Abraham understood that? Because what does he call the place? Yivayivir. Or we might say Jehovah But what does that mean? God will provide. It does not say God has provided. If he thought that that ram was good enough, wouldn't he have called it God has provided? Why would he call it God will provide, except that he's still looking forward to something? Are you with me on that? So I get on this hunt. And the hunt is, where's the sech? The next time I find the sech is in Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, verses 2, 3, and 4, it says, Now, Moses is telling the people, Hey, by the way, what you need to do is you need to take a lamb. And once you take that lamb, the next verse says, Then you need to take the lamb. And the next verse says, Then you need to take your lamb. And it needs to be slaughtered, and the blood needs to be on the doorpost. Without developing all of the beautiful imagery, don't miss the point of this. I went looking for a sech, and the next time there was a sech, he was killed. And you know why he was killed? And he couldn't just be Asa. He had to be a specific one. And that specific one needed to become my one. And as he was slaughtered and his blood was put upon my home, 
the death angel would pass over and I would be delivered out of Egypt, delivered out of the land of slavery and out of the hand of the enemy. And I go, ooh, that's fun. Well, just for fun, when's the next time I find the sech? Well, I have to go to the next book for that. And the next book, the book of Leviticus, the book of sacrifices. Now I go from this and I find in Leviticus chapter 3 through 5, the sech is reintroduced. And he's reintroduced as the sacrifice that is called the peace offering. The next time he's introduced is in Leviticus 3. Interesting, the peace offering is when two people were enemies, but now they've become friends. And as they've become friends, a lamb is slaughtered. They have a barbecue and everybody gets to eat together. What a cool thing. And he goes, that's the sacrifice where the tzach shows up again. So let me see if I have it right. God will provide himself to be. Then it was slaughtered to get us out of the hand of enemy, out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of the, of the enemy, out of the hand of bondage. And then the next time I see it is the time where two things that were enemies have become friends. But interesting, there were other two other sacrifices where it's introduced in 3 through 5. That is the sin offering and the trespass offering. And I start to put this together. God will provide himself to be this. Okay. It's the lamb that has to be slaughtered so that man could go free from bondage in the land of the enemy, hand of the enemy. But it has to be to reconcile two parties that were at war. And the thing that was between them was sin and trespasses. Okay. But then as I start walking beyond that, I realize that in Leviticus, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 53, it says this in verse 7. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jeremiah eleven nineteen. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. And Ezekiel forty five fifteen. The lamb will make atonement for the people. And I go, wait a minute. The lamb has to make atonement for the people. But the lamb is supposed to be God provided himself to be this, right? But doesn't it have to be about sin and trespass to make two parties that were at enmity one so that as it were slaughtered, it could actually release people from the bondage that they were in? And then I get to John. And in John 1, what's the first thing Jesus is called? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I realize John knew what he was talking about. God will provide himself to be the lamb. But that lamb needed to be slaughtered so that I could be set free. But that lamb needed to be a sacrifice. It wasn't just slaughtered and inherently. This lamb would be slaughtered for the purpose of reconciling two parties that were at enmity with each other. And those two parties, the problem was sin and trespass. But the problem was never God's. It was mine. God never trespassed. God never sinned. That's why when we offered the sacrifices, we offered them to God knowing he was holy and we weren't. But then God steps in to be that sacrifice. Interesting, because even though Peter would make mention of that as well, is the lamb without blemish or stain. When I get to the book of Revelation, the whole thing closes in on me. When it says that when the seals of the bankrupt deed of the earth were laid before us, and who was able to do this? Who was the only one able to reclaim the property of the land? Could only be the owner of the land of earth. And we read that they looked in heaven and on earth and below the earth and couldn't find anyone. And John begins to weep. 
that means that everything's hopeless, hopeless. But it's the elder from heaven's perspective says, look, 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 the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion that came from Judah. But John's looking from an earthly perspective. And as John looks up, he says he saw a lamb as if it had been slain. Interesting. Because even in heaven, we will see that the marks of the lamb still testify of what he's done for us. The lamb of God. God provided himself the lamb. And understand, though the law could not make me right, the law showed me there was space here. The appropriate filling for this, to make it this, is the lamb. It gets so important that, listen, by the time we get to Revelation, let me put this back on. By the time we get to Revelation, verse tw- chapter 21, It tells us that there is a book of life and it is the Lamb's book of life. And only those who are written in that book of the Lamb's book of life will inherit eternal life. But you know what eternal life says here in in Revelation 22.3? Listen, there is no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. That's our last Lamb mention. From Genesis to Revelation, we become right through the Lamb. Listen to Isaiah 53. Remember me telling you this is what would not be allowed in the Haftorah? Let me give you the first six verses, and maybe add a verse here or two then. Who has believed our report? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up like a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that we should see him or beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely our sorrows he carried, our griefs he bore. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. Remember peace, two things being brought back? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed because we all like sheep have gone astray. Everyone, each to his own way, And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Listen. Iniquity? Isaiah 59.2 tells us that it is our iniquities that have separated us from God. Our iniquities. We were separate because we'd become God's enemy. But the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In order to be made right like a peace offering, the lamb needed to be slaughtered. And that lamb was slaughtered so that we could be healed. Now, there are many who like to take that verse out of, and they were like, well, you know, by his stripes we're healed. And they could claim it over everything. They'd wave it over a wart and cancer alike. 
But the context, it says, because we all like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid upon us the iniquity of us all, laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The thing we needed to be healed from first and foremost was not warts, even cancer. We needed to be healed from the eternal damnation we had properly gained when we were an ignoble vessel. And Jesus' stripes has healed us, have healed us. And here's my question. Believe it or not, we're almost done. It isn't like we're halfway there even though we have one more verse because the other verse kind of cleans it up. Listen. The law said, then how? The prophet said, well, then who? And the who is the lamb. From the beginning to the end, the law needed to be filled. See the law like this. And this isn't complete until it's full. And only Jesus can fill this. You know, it's interesting. Back to you. The term's also used when we read, and you are complete in Him. Nothing else can make you complete. And do you realize that? I mean, imagine if this was you. Here's the problem. You try to find a relationship, it's just not big enough. Try to find power or money, a job, and not that those things are bad, but they don't fill this because this hole is too big. The vessel that you are can only be filled, it's actually so big, it can only be filled by your maker. You see, when God shaped you, he made you a specific size. And the size that he made you was because he says, according to, to Colossians 1, it says, by him and for him you were created. You were created for him. He shaped this in such a way, because you were created for him, he shaped it in such a way that only he could fill this spot. Because that's how he made you. So that no matter what you try to fill this with will not satisfy until you let him do it. Because nothing is big enough but him. So listen to this second verse and we'll close this up. So it says then, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, did you notice again, heaven and earth will. Notice it doesn't say if, but till. Till means it's going to happen. And I don't care how much you recycle and how much you want to save the ozone. With all due respect, you're certainly welcome to do all of that. I have no problem with that. Heaven and earth, they are going to pass away. Until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until, it's, until this thing is full. So what's a jot or a tittle? Well, listen. If we were to look at the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet has letters, like we would expect. Very different from ours. There were no vowels. But there are two different letters. For instance, the letter resh, like an R, simply goes like this. Just like that. The letter dalit, like the D, is the same thing with this little tail right here up at the top. That's the difference. That little bit right there is called a tittle. If you will, the closest thing we may have to it, if you think about it, would be like the difference between an F and a T. In the sense where you have that line in the middle or like an E or a C. We have that line in the middle, like that little thing makes the difference between one letter and another. 
It's this little thing that makes the difference between one letter and another. A yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's basically today what we would say is like an apostrophe. That's it. But that's really important. Let me tell you how important it is. The word kadosh, holy, kadosh, temple prostitute. And the difference is yod. Yeah, you might want to know the difference because I guarantee you, if you read that wrong, you're going to get a really funky doctrine. The word not is the difference of a tittle. You can imagine how important that is. So when Jesus says not one jot, yad, smallest letter or tittle, the part that separates one letter from another will ever be broken. See, what he tells us is that whether you like it or not, not like here where you can have a law and then you can change the law. He says, God's law, listen, and understand, if you know the story of Esther, one of the important parts of it is that an established, strong kingdom never changes its laws. For a kingdom to change its laws says that the kingdom is weak. And that's why when Esther says, well, this king has then said he's made this law that they can kill the Jews and she's going to come. She knows the kingdom is too strong for them to change a law. Isn't that interesting when we think about ourselves both here and in America where the laws are constantly changing? She's like, is there any way to any go? So ultimately, he doesn't change the law. What he does is he writes another one that allows them to fight back. Because if the law were changed, the kingdom would be weak. And what he tells us is God's kingdom will never be weak, like it or not. His laws are never going to change. And you could say it doesn't seem like it's culturally appropriate. Well, can I just say the problem isn't the law. The problem is the culture. You can say, well, our culture has evolved to this. Well, first of all, I would use the word devolved. But if you actually looked at Roman culture 2,000 years ago and look at this, they're not any different. The difference is we stare at screens now as back then they just killed each other in some other way. I mean, in the, I mean the, the, you know, our, our drugs are a little bit more complex, but it's the same lifestyle. The same arguments over the same things, the same cravings over the same things. It's the same thing. So please hear me in this. Till one, it goes, heaven and earth are going to pass away. But before that happens, this right here, because this is not going to be broken. And this is not going to be broken, but it's going to be properly filled. Because there is, this thing has a date to be filled. Now understand, for all the prophecies that were given of Jesus' first coming, there are over twice as many for the second. That is important to know. I mean, there are people who have done things like probability chance factors, and maybe you've heard a little of those. Well, like they took the first 17 or 27 and, and said, what's the probable chance factor of somebody just sort of stumbling in and being born in Bethlehem, being called out of Egypt, being called a Nazarene, called birth, born by a virgin? How often does that happen among people, people gambling for their clothing? And they took those, and they took, by the way, of the 300 that were actually of Jesus' first coming, they took the first, was it 17 or something? And they said, what's the probability of those happening by chance? And they said basically it's the probability of this if you filled you know if you took the probability and took like the options of finding the right one it'd be like taking grains of sand finding the right grain of sand but the problem is you would have to fill the sand to fill our milky way (laughs) which is a hundred thousand years to travel from as light from one side to the other so let's just say you could go as fast as light 
and you were in, I don't know, whatever, the Starship Enterprise or whatever, and you hit warp speed. And somewhere in all of this, over 100,000 years, you were going from one side to the other, and it was completely full of sand, and you blindfolded yourself, and you went out there and you grabbed one grain of sand. The possibility of you grabbing the right one would be the probability of, by the way, I'm not even, not even finding one twentieth of the prophecies that were given of Jesus' first coming. It's mind-blowing. And people say, well, that takes an act of faith. It's the greatest, it's the most reasonable act of faith anyone can get. And the reason I say that is that when this bowl of the Old Testament was filled for the first coming of our King to redeem, like the Lamb. By the way, do you remember those signs of the curse? It was the crowns. I'm sorry, it was the thorns. And it was a woman in childbirth. You wonder why Jesus wore a crown of thorns on his head when he died on the cross? He was taking the curse to death. What's interesting is the second coming, according to the Thessalonian letter, says it is like a woman in childbirth. God's going to wrap this whole thing up when he comes. And when he does come, there will be no more curse. Because the throne of God and the Lamb are there in its place. So let me ask you something as we go to prayer. If you're a vessel, don't think of yourself as this body is me. Inside this body is you. You cut off your arms and your legs, you're still there. And this thing, this shell that you are, this vessel that surrounds you, that holds you, one day you're going to cash it in. We're all aware of that. Like it or not, no matter how much you nip and tuck and sew and suck or whatever you need to do, sooner or later, it's gonna, you're going you're gonna to cash in the jersey. You can't wear it forever. And can I say as we get older, some of us have a big hallelujah when we hear that. And I'll be free from the erosion of this world. But I won't cease to be. Inside this body is, is a, a guy that gets actually better by the day. I keep reminding my wife of that. And one day I'm going to stand before the God who made me to be with him. He's like, what did you fill that body with? And I'm not talking about vitamins and did you eat fried food or whatever, red meat. The question is if this person inside that, the me is actually this. Not this body, but me, the me, the soul that is in me is actually this. It was meant to be filled. And there's the point. In the same way that Jesus filled perfectly the law to come and save. He wants to fill you perfectly as well. And if you're willing to say yes to that Lamb of God who died on the cross for you and rose again on the third day to give you new life, let me tell you what he'll give you. Well, remember what it said? Joy and peace and hope and abundance. What we'll discover is as a soul... We weren't just meant to be a container. He gives us more than we can contain so that we spill it. There's the cool part. And you know this because if you fill the wrong thing, you, when someone bumps into you, they get that too. You're kind of trying to smile, but you're inside, you're all kind of, when someone bumps in, you're like, hey! And be like, whoa, excuse me. Woke up on the wrong side of the broom. You know, and we, re- we recognize that. But when you're full of the joy of the Lord where you can't contain it, what happens is people start asking, what in the heck's wrong with you? Because you're happy. How did that work? Everyone do that for you? Like, what is it about you? And you're like, oh, I'm going to just risk it, Jesus. And they're like, what? 
like, that's the last thing I expected you to say. Drugs would have made more sense than Jesus. I'm like, you haven't met the real guy then. He's intended to fill you. Beloved, as we go to prayer, I'm going to give you the choice to say yes to this Jesus. But if you have said yes to Jesus, can I say, let's let God clean us all the way from the inside out and fill us to overflowing because you were created to be full of them and overflow that joy, that hope, that peace. Can you imagine what would happen if the world saw that in us? Pray with me, would you please? Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't come to break the law. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't come to destroy the law, to unravel it. But you saw the law as it really is, a vessel that needed to be filled. And the law said, how does man get right? And the law said that man was not right. So the law said man needs to get right and he can't get it here. This just shows he's not right. And the prophet said, well, who will make us right? And Jesus, you've come to fill that. No other religion out there can do that. I get the idea that your Holy Spirit testifies from birth that there is something inherently wrong with us. That's why there are so many other religions in the world, people trying to make themselves right. They know they're not right. And your law made clear that we're not right, but the beauty is, is that you're also, your prophets made clear that we could be made right. But it would take a sacrifice that we ourselves could not do with ourselves. But allowing a perfect sacrifice in our stead. Jesus, thank you for being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for being that Lamb that Abraham promised. The Lamb for the offering. True worship. Thank you, Jesus, for being the Lamb that would be slaughtered that is more than just a Lamb. We don't recognize you as an option. And not just the Lamb, but we recognize you are the option to become right. But you have to become our Lamb. And in the same way here in this room right now, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of us by the power of your Holy Spirit and convince the truth of this in our own hearts and minds. And Lord, right now, if there be any in this room or within the sound of this voice who have yet to say yes to you, as this prayer is prayed, Lord, affirm it in their own. And as I pray this prayer right now, if you agree at the end, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen in what you're saying as I agree. Let those be my words now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I am a sinner. And I know that that sin, as you read, as I've read, my iniquities separate me from you. But you also made clear that you've laid my iniquities on the Lamb of your Son. That is your Son. And as He died on the cross for me, He paid for my iniquity in full. 
And as he rose again, he offers me new life. And I say yes. I say yes to Jesus as my payment. Yes to Jesus as my Lord, as the reinventor of my life. And I say yes to Jesus now to fill me, to scoop out from me anything that doesn't belong and fill me with you. Make me right with you. Be my peace offering. Even now, Jesus, be my lamb in your name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. And Lord, I pray right now for every believer in here. Lord, as we've made clear today, we are a vessel. And we are created to be a vessel of glory, even though we were born inglorious. And I pray tonight here that as you move in our hearts and minds, Lord, that you do something so rich, so profound. Give us the willingness, Lord, to let you scoop into our lives and scoop out anything that shouldn't be there and replace it with the fullness of you. That, Lord, we would abound in joy and we would abound in hope and we would abound in peace and love for one another, that you would bear forth the fruit of your spirit. And, Lord, that we would spill you all over everyone around us as salt, as light, as the blessed. Lord, as the salt, the light, make us witnesses now, I pray. And Lord, as you fill us with those things, pour forth from us, Lord, your joy. Pour forth your love. Pour forth your peace. And let us be those vessels of honor you ordained us to be. Sanctuaries of our King. In Jesus' name. Amen.